Morning, New Hope family. Thank you for that, Michael. That was, that was pretty great. I, I really enjoyed that, especially knowing that there were other musicians and instrumentalists working in the background and joining in that. That was pretty great. We, we do that because he's worthy of the glory and he's worthy of the honor and he's worthy of the praise. Right, church? Uh, I would encourage you to do this right now. If you're watching in a place where you can make a comment, maybe uh, not driving, but uh, sitting at home, uh, would you just respond back with amen? Say amen. He's worthy of the glory. He's worthy of the honor. He's worthy of the praise. And he deserves all the praise that we can bring him. So just type in amen. No matter if you're watching from South America or you're watching from Italy, you're watching from Texas, or you're watching from Okemos right now or East Lansing, just send, send a note in. Let us know where you're watching from. But just an amen would be enough just to let us know you agree with that statement. I'm going to ask you to go to John 21 this morning, if you would, if you have your Bible with you. And we're beginning very quickly a, a new series. It, it's not going to be a very long one. It's actually kind of a short series, and it's just called Reasoning. And we're thinking through the reasons for why we believe what we believe. And there's an approach by which we should look at this, and it comes from something Peter wrote, actually. And I want you to look with me on the screen at this. We'll pray together in just a minute, but look first at 1 Peter 3.15. He wrote, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. And, and the word there is apologia, the, the defense word. I'll explain that in just a minute. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Some translations say, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. And this is a component that I want to talk to you about today. When we enter into conversations with individuals about why we believe the way that we believe, why we have the hope that we have, Peter writes, when you give a reason for that, do it with gentleness and reverence for the reason that you have this hope. So we want to approach it with that attitude this morning. Here's what I find really remarkable about 1 Peter 3.15. I find it so remarkable that that was written by the very one that we saw last weekend who really, really struggled for why he was a follower of Jesus. He didn't have a defense for it, and he desperately struggled to make a defense. You might remember when we looked at the Easter account last week, we saw that Peter's warming himself around the fire. People came into the courtyard. They began saying he was with Jesus. He began cursing back at them. But now we find the older Peter, who's looking back over the course of his life, saying, be in that place where you're ready to make a defense. Be in that place where you're ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you, but also do it with gentleness and reverence. And it really strikes me that the older Peter, looking back at this earlier session on his life, this younger Peter, saying, don't do it like that. Be, be ready when the moment comes. What a contrast to the Peter who was cursing people for accusing him of belonging to Jesus. The word that he uses there in 1 Peter 3.15, the word always, it indicates that there's, there's a need for being constantly ready to respond well, Peter has a reason now, the older Peter has a reason, actually multiple reasons. First and foremost, he saw the resurrected Jesus. First and foremost, he laid eyes on Jesus and he writes with one who has authority now because he's actually seen Jesus resurrected. But that's just one of the reasons. I mean, that's probably the most important reason, but 
Here's the other reason. Peter had breached the relationship, and he knew what it was to be forgiven and to be restored. And I want to go further with you on that thought this morning. But before we do that, I'd love to pray with you. Would you join me in prayer together, church? Let's do that. Father, I thank you for the worship that we just celebrated you with. And we get to do that again, and yet the, the, the songs prepare our hearts. And thank you for moving through Michael and the instrumentalists to do that this morning, to put us in that place where we're ready to receive your word. I pray right now that you would align our hearts, you would align our minds, you would align our thinking with your thoughts. We don't ask you to adapt to us, we, we know that we need to adapt to you. So Father, we ask that you would help us to wrap our mind around the way that you act, the way that you demonstrate yourself. And we know that this is not an easy task for us. Paul even writes about it, Father, this morning. So we put ourselves in that place where we're yielded, we're open, and we're ready for you to teach us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would do that, do that now, as we look at this story. We ask for that in Jesus' name, amen. Catalambano. You see that word appearing on your screen this morning. Catalambano means to wrap your mind around something, and I want you to get that word down because it's going to be used in a, a verse in Ephesians we're going to look at for just a moment. Wrap your mind around something that you can't comprehend is the way Paul actually writes. Let me show you how Catalambano is used. It's in Ephesians 3.18. He's writing to the church, he's writing to believers, and he says, I'm, I'm praying that you would be able to, Catalambano, that you would be able to comprehend, comprehend what, Paul? Comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So do you catch what Paul's writing here? He's writing that I'm praying that you would comprehend that which you can't comprehend, Wrap your mind around that one. I'm praying that you would comprehend that which you can't comprehend. But he writes scripture that way very specifically because he says the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Jesus, it just surpasses knowledge. It goes beyond comprehension. So how do we comprehend the incomprehensible? Well, to a degree, you have to sometimes experience it. Experience helps a lot, much more so than reading, much more so than maybe just hearing. Uh, an example of that would be when I was in high school trying to wrap my mind around math principles, um, especially when I got past Algebra 1 and Algebra 2 and, and started looking at geometry and trigonometry. And I bailed on those in high school. <laughs> I didn't want anything to do with them because I, I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't comprehend it. And lo and behold, I get to college and I'm in flight school and I began understanding that these principles of algebra, the principles of geometry, the principles of trigonometry, they all played into the cockpit of that airplane. And I began learning that way. I began understanding that trigonometry actually had principles in flight. Paul's saying, I want you to comprehend the incomprehensible, and sometimes I'm saying that we have to do that through experience. So to comprehend that which we compre can't comprehend, I'm, I'm going to take you to the beach this morning. We're going to see a real life experience, and Jesus is cooking breakfast, and he's carrying out the restoration of Peter while he's on the beach so that he can get back in the game. 
without John chapter 21, hopefully you've turned your Bibles there by now, but without John chapter 21, you'd be left wondering why in the world did Peter become so prominent in the book of Acts? How is he able to make a defense like he does in the book of Acts? Well, it's because of what you're about to read here in John 21. And in the process, we get an eyewitness view of what the love of Christ looks like. What is the breadth and the depth and the height and the knowledge of the love of Christ? And I say that because God knows it's hard for you to understand. He knows it's hard for me to understand the reality of how big his love is. So at the pinnacle of the greatest moment in history, he stops everything to help us grasp what is the breadth, what is the depth, what is the height to know the love of Christ. I want you to see the pause button with me as we step into John 21. It says this in verse 1, John 21, 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And if you're wondering what the Sea of Tiberias is, that's the Sea of Galilee. It's just a a Roman name that's given to it. The Sea of Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee are the same thing. That's just a detail, but here's what's more important. John writes, after these things, what things? Well, after the events of chapter 20, meaning after the resurrection, After the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples eventually leave Jerusalem and they go north into the region of Galilee because Jesus commanded them to do that. You might remember that from last week when we were looking at Peter's story. Remember we started out last week in the Easter story talking about the reality that the angel said to the women, go and tell Peter and his disciples, I'm going ahead of them to Galilee. Well, this is that same passage. It's referring to that region the northern part of Israel known as Galilee. Here's an example for you from Mark 14, 28. Jesus said to them, after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee, meaning they knew in advance they were supposed to go there. Or Matthew 28, 16. Matthew gets really specific. He says, the 11 disciples, Judas is gone by this point, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated, meaning right to the very location Jesus had designated a specific point. But in John, you find a problem. John 21 says Jesus manifests himself at the sea. And that's the first indication there's a problem here. They're not at the mountain. They're in Galilee, but they're not at the mountain. And apparently, they've gone to the lake. Evidently, either they've got some bills to pay or they're hungry, or they've been tired of waiting at the mountain for Jesus. So we find verse 2, Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, that means the twin, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will come with you. We also will come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So you've got seven of the 11 together, seven that have just been named here, and they decided to go fishing. Fishing is what Peter knows best. Fishing is what Peter apparently is returning to here, even if it's temporarily. He knows it. It's safe. He's had a major fail in his life. He's failed Jesus. He has a sense of inadequacy, and apparently he's returning to the familiar. You're going to see that develop as we work through this. Now, Peter's not suggesting recreational fishing here just to pass the time. 
He's actually returning to the nets. We've all been tempted to do that when we've had failure in our life. We've all been tempted to go back to what we think is safe, what we know. We, We know the boundary lines around that. But Peter, along with the other disciples, they've been chosen to be fishers of men. You've probably heard that phrase if you've grown up in church. That term, fishers of men, it was actually borrowed from the Greek philosophers. It was talking about catching people with the truth of information and reeling them in. And Jesus uses that phrase when he calls the disciples. He said, I want you to be fishers of men. You remember that from three years earlier? Look with me on the screen, Matthew 4, 19. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And that was the beginning of a whole new life for them. But here, after the resurrection in John 21, you find them fishing again. And they're using nets and they're using a fishing boat, even though Jesus called them away from that. And we're told by John that it was a useless night. Go with me to verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood at the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Don't let that pass by too quickly. You've got God standing at the beach. You go back one chapter, just one chapter, chapter 20, and you find the greatest event the world has ever known. Jesus not only dies for our sins, buried in the tomb, but then he's resurrected and explodes on the scene, bursting forth from the grave. It's so powerful of an event that it actually causes an earthquake. The tectonic plates in the earth shift because of the resurrection of Jesus. Look with me, Matthew 28, 2. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. A mega seismos, a a severe shaking of the earth. That's one chapter earlier. And now you've got God on a beach. What an incredible contrast. What Jesus does next is very, very telling. And the question that he asks them actually anticipates a negative reply on their part. Verse 5, so Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. Fail. Fail with a capital F. You need to catch the tone that's going on in here. It's through failure that God brings us face to face with his capacity. You've had failure in your life. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And God brings us face to face with our incapacity and his capacity through our failures. So his question to them is like, you want fish? I'll give you fish. And the one who created the fish calls them. We see that next in verse 6. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch There's no doubt that they're exhausted and that they're frustrated. They don't know yet who's speaking to them. They're 100 yards offshore. And Jesus begins calling out to them. That they listen to him is really remarkable. It indicates that he's speaking in an authoritative voice here. And they yield to that voice. So they cast their nets, verse 6, the last part of verse 6, part B. So they cast their nets. They're not able to haul it in because of the great number of the fish. How you read those verses is really important. 
When he says, children, you do not have any fish, do you? It's not as though, you can read this in two different tones. I want you to hear the different tone with me. It's not like, you, you don't have any fish in the boat, do you? There's one tone you could say it with. Or here's how the Greek language indicates the tone is. You don't have any fish in the boat, do you? One's much more authoritative. One's mostly accusatory because there's something that's gone on here. So we find when we get down to verse 6, part B, they cast their nets. They're not able to haul it in. The catch is so great. So they cast their nets, and the net is thrown out, and it hits the water, and there's a sound as the net settles down into the water. You might remember when we were working through the parable series, I said there were three forms of nets that were used during this period of time. This particular one is the seine net. It's the one that drops. We talked about how like when you go to a pizza parlor, somebody's throwing dough up in the air and the, the, net, the dough gets bigger and bigger and bigger and spread out. Well, that's a seine net. It, it's thrown out and it gets bigger and bigger as it goes out into the air and it drops over the top of the fish. It's not a drag net here. This is a seine net. During the night... The creator had directed the fish away from them. They caught absolutely nothing. They're professional fishermen, and it was a useless night. And now the creator commands the creation to respond, and the net is so full that men who made their living at the sea can't haul the net in. If you go further down to verse 10, you're going to see that they caught 153 fish. You'll see that detail in just a moment. That, that's 21 fish per men. They've gone way over the limit. <laughs> if the DNR was existing at that time, they'd give them a fine because they've caught way outside their limit. Look at what Dr. Wearsby said. I just wanted you to see this quote. You see it in your notes this morning. The difference between success and failure was the width of a boat. We are never far from success when we permit Jesus to give the orders. I love this story and I love this particular section of the story for this reason. He's still working in their lives. Why do I say that? Because God can leave them alone. Think about what's happened in recent days leading up to this moment. They stumbled just like he said they would. Some of them denied him. Thomas challenged him on whether or not he was really real. And now they're in a different location than what they're supposed to be. They're not at the mountain. They're actually out fishing. And yet God still pursues them. He's still working in their lives. And so in verse 6, we see him saying, Try the other side. Stop doing, in other words, what you've been doing because what you're doing is not working. Put yourself in that boat this morning right now. Put yourself in that place. Have you been chasing your own direction? You've been going after your own agenda, tried your own solutions, and maybe along the way, you've even denied a relationship with God. Maybe somebody's pushed your buttons that hard that you've actually walked away and you're carrying guilt and you feel such a weight over that. And then you're seeing God show up. This story goes into a much deeper level now when you come into verse seven. It's not just about the disciples not being where they're supposed to be. And it's, it's not just about them fishing. It's story's not about fishing. Watch in verse seven. 
Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Peter, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Stripped for work doesn't mean buck naked. It means he's stripped down to the loincloth because it's really warm. It's, it's springtime in Israel. And so he's taken off the outer layers. He, he throws himself into the water. Peter's not going to wait. He knows that it's Jesus now. What was important a half hour earlier, what, what had his attention and captivated him, is no longer important at all. Verse 8. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. I read this and, and I smile because I recognize that John is 90 plus years of age when he's writing this. This isn't the young John writing this. this. This is John, the old man, and I think he's looking back and smiling on this scene, and you'll see especially why as this next verse develops. Go with me to verse nine. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread See, John's writing from the perspective of an eyewitness, and he's 90-plus, and, and he can still remember that they'd been out all night, and it was completely useless. And if you've been out in the water at night, you know there's a certain chill that's in the air on open water like that. And now they come ashore, and they find a fire, and the glow of coals from that fire is emanating, and and there's fresh fish, and there's this aroma of baked bread. And I just want to speculate with you for a minute because I've read the stories, I've read the account, perhaps you have too if you've grown up in church. I'm speculating that the God who made manna in the Old Testament, the same God who called forth fish to feed the 5,000, same God is now standing on a beach, and he's created fish and bread for breakfast. Verse 10 says this. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. In other words, like I've got mine, now bring yours. In verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land and full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. You can tell this is an eyewitness account, right? That John's the one who was personally there, and he remembers the details. It was 153 fish. Apparently, Peter is a man of considerable strength. He's, he's able to haul in this net by himself, large net full of fish onto the shore. If you've been on the water for any length of time, especially in the evening, you know what it is to come ashore and find a warm fire burning. And, and then food is cooking, and you, you're like, oh, man, all of my senses are working now. This is, mm, I can't wait for this. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. They know that it's Jesus, but here's what's really clear as you read chapter 20 and chapter 21. Each one of them have failed Jesus in some way. In each case, there's been a failure of measuring up. We'll develop that thought in just a little bit. This breakfast that he's serving, this is a call to fellowship. 
This is a call to full fellowship. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise, verse 14. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You, you might remember the two other times. Two other times were in the upper room, but this is the third time here, and so I want you to pay very close attention to verse 13. You notice if you have your translation of the Bible open, especially if you have the translation I have, the, the New American Standard Version or the New American Standard Bible, do you see an asterisk next to he took the fish and he took the bread? There's an emphasis there. It, it, it's like this. They were hesitant. It, it's as though they're in awe of what they're seeing in front of them, that they're with the resurrected Jesus and they're about to have breakfast with him. And so he took it and put it in their hands because they're not doing it. He, he took the fish and put it in their hands. He, he took the bread and gave it to them. Apparently, they're so overwhelmed by the invitation and they're in the presence of Jesus. He has to physically give it to them. Now, here's where the transition takes place in which John is writing this. And I think the whole reason that he's building up to this moment do you like walking on the beach in the morning? Do you like that moment of the day? It's very, very still. No one's playing Frisbee yet. You can hear in the distance the sound of some seagulls. Traffic hasn't amped up because the day's not hot yet. And except for the mild lapping of the waves, there's no other activity. Peter's already had a morning swim. He's had the opportunity to dry off and and get some breakfast and satisfy his hunger. And then comes this part in verse 15. Verse 15, part A, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I'll tell you, church, my experience is this, and I'm, I'm sure you could identify with this if you've been in a relationship with Christ for any length of time in your life. God never makes it easy on us when there's been a breach in the relationship. God never takes away the difficulty. He lets us feel the weight of what we've done and that's what Jesus is doing here. God doesn't make it easy if we're living in disobedience. He doesn't wanna allow a false sense of confidence about the relationship when the relationship is broken but what I want you to see here is that God's the one initiating the fix. Here's what we know. Peter has denied a relationship with Jesus. When someone came to him and asked him to make a defense for why he was with Jesus, he ran the opposite direction. And now he's actually even gone back to his old life. And so Jesus hits this issue head on. And he's very direct. Jesus is not afraid of confrontation. It's not an issue. This is the equivalency of Jesus saying to him, Peter, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Do you love me more than these things that you're part of? I want you to notice, maybe you've never paid attention to this. If you have your Bible open this morning, even circle this. It says in verse 15, Simon, son of John. Jesus refers to him by his old name. He's not calling him Simon Peter. 
Earlier, you might remember, if you know your Bible, that Jesus gave Peter a name change. You will be known as Peter Petra the Rock. But he's not calling him by his new name here. He's calling him by Simon, son of John. Why Simon, son of John? Well, literally, Peter has gone back to the place of beginning. When Jesus called him from the shore as a fisherman, come and I will make you fishers of men, that's when he was Simon, son of John. And now he goes back to the old name with him, and I think it's really deliberate here. Because God never beats around the bush. This is a really pointed question. Do you love me more than these? These, if you're curious, the word there is is hutos. And and it's not specific, and people have speculated for years, what is he talking about when he says these? What's the these? This, that, the other thing, the, the nets? Is he referring to the boats? Do you love me, Peter, more than your former way of life? Regardless of what these is, whether it's the other disciples around him or his previous job, his previous profession, Jesus has an interesting wordplay that's much more important than what the these is, and it's on the word love. He actually uses the word agapeo. Jesus uses the word agapeo. Peter doesn't use it. Agapeo is the highest form of love. It's a total commitment. You see that on your screen, and maybe you downloaded the notes this morning. You see agapeo. It implies a total commitment of the heart. It's very, very deliberate. So this goes to a heart issue. Peter has a heart issue. He had a really high opinion of himself Do you remember his statement to Jesus weeks earlier, probably only a couple weeks earlier from this point right here? If everyone else would fall away from you, Jesus, I won't. Even if they all deny you, I will never deny you. See, he had a really high opinion of his loyalty factor. So Jesus has the right to ask him the question, do you have a commitment to me? Because he's regarded himself as the model of love for Jesus, but he's not living up to his own definition. Go back to verse 15. Look at part B. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I'm convinced that Peter is completely aware of his failure in this moment right here. Can he claim the highest love? Can he claim agapeo love? Or what's the word that he just used here? If you know the story, you know that he just used the word phileo. His response to Jesus is, you know that I like you, Jesus. You know that I'm fond of you. And it indicates there's there's an attachment there. But it's not agapeo love. It's not the highest form. So Jesus allows Peter's answer to slide. And he focuses him with the rest of verse 15, part C. He said to him, tend my lambs. Now just think with me for a moment what tending means. That was a term that was used of herdsmen who cared for livestock. What's true of those who care for livestock? If you ask a dairy farmer, a dairy farmer would answer it this way. When you're tending to the dairy cows, you can't leave them. You can't abandon them and go do whatever you want to do. Most dairy farmers never even get a vacation. Tend my herd, Peter. 
tend to my flock, see after my lambs. See, it's something you don't leave. God's calling Peter out. Peter, be totally committed here. Don't leave things. So I'm asking you this morning, what are the these in your life? What's the hutos? Is God calling you away from something right now that you've been distracted with? Is he calling you to something else? Have you allowed the these to crowd into your life? I promise you, if God's calling you from something, it's always to something. You see that here with Peter. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's agapeo. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. So once again, Jesus uses agapeo, and once again, Peter comes in low, phileo. Do you love me with total commitment, Peter? You know that I'm fond of you, Jesus. Verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love? And there Jesus does not use agapeo. There Jesus uses phileo. He's not even asking him at that point, do you have total commitment? He's saying, do you really even like me, Peter? Do you even want a relationship with me? So we're told that by John that Peter's grieved at this point because Jesus has just pushed a button and he's pushed it really, really hard. John writes that Peter is grieved because Jesus asked him this the third time. The word that's grieved that's used here, it's lupeo, and, and it, it's not in your notes, I don't think, and it, it, it's not gonna come up on the screen, but here's what it, me it means. It actually means to be in distress. Peter's in distress over that question. What's the reason for the grief? Well, there's been a change in the vocabulary. Jesus has gone from agapeo down to phileo. See, the first time Jesus asked the question, Peter brings the response of something like this. Well, of course, of course I love you. Of course I'm really fond of being with you. And now he's got grief with the third response because Jesus is using the word phileo and he's calling into question even the weakest form of love. Here's what I'm convinced of as I read this story. Peter thought that he's safe in at least claiming that. And God's saying, do you even have that? Do you even have that level? See, the implications are this, church. The actions, Peter, don't support the claim verbally. We say this all the time at New Hope. What you believe about God determines what you do next. What you believe about God, follow that reasoning through, determines what you do next. If you believe something about God and your relationship to him, however you act next should be a reflection of that. Jesus is calling Peter into question here because he's saying what you believe, Peter, and what you're doing, Peter, they're two things entirely different. 
and a superficial response to Jesus will not cut it. It never does. Peter has just experienced a major undoing of his self-assertiveness. And it's the third time that Jesus asked it that does it. Imagine the scene with me now as John paints this. Put all these pieces together. You've got the charcoal fire. You've got the three questions that are being asked about Peter's relationship to Jesus. And it does not take a genius to connect this event to the denial on the Thursday night before Jesus is crucified. Warm fire, people sitting around the fire. Questions are being asked, do you really belong to Jesus or not? And you don't have to be all that smart to put these pieces together. Jesus has just recreated the exact same scene. Facing up to your own sin is a traumatic experience. Facing up to one's own sin is trauma with a capital T, and that's what's happening for Peter. What happened at the Last Supper? Even though all may fail you, I will never fail you. I own this. You and I, Jesus, we're together on this. I will be there. I will die for you if I have to die for you. And God's calling him on it, and it's... It's breaking Peter's heart, and so John writes that he's grieved. Verse 17, part B, and he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep, Peter. Don't be a wandering herdsman. Stay at the game that I've called you to. You got to follow me, Peter. And I'm here to show you that Peter's failures are not the end. I know you know that if you know anything about Peter, but his failures are not the end. Watch Jesus' response to him in verse 18. There's promise in this. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. This, this is Jesus saying, You've done whatever you wanted to up till now, Peter. Keep going. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Verse 19. Now this he said signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. New Hope, verse 18 is a turning point in the restoration of Peter. This is Jesus saying to him, you're going to get back in the game because you have a future. Up till now, you've done everything that you wanted to do the way that you wanted to do it. You've girded yourself and you've gone wherever you wanted to go. But there's a day coming when you won't be able to do that because you belong to me, Peter. And somebody's going to force your life to an end. You don't want to go there, but it's going to happen, Peter. Verse 19b, and when he had spoken this, he said to them, watch this very, very powerful statement from Jesus. This is the capstone of the restoration. He said to him, Follow me. The way that's written in the, in the Greek language makes it really clear that this is the exact same phrase that Peter, Peter had heard before. He's heard that phrase the first time he met Jesus. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, written in the Greek here, is literally this way. Keep on following me. It's written in a presentive, presentive imperative. 
in a present imperative, it means keep doing this over and over. In other words, Jesus is giving him a new beginning. Begin again, Peter. Begin again. And this is the last time that Jesus ever has to call him Simon, son of John. Even John himself, when he writes this, writes about him as Peter, Peter the rock. Throughout the rest of his life, he writes of him as Peter. A few weeks later, it's Peter the rock who stands in public and compels everyone who's listening. You've got to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to receive him and follow him. This story right here makes the explanation for why the change that you see throughout the book of Acts. And at the end of his life, he's able to write one of the most beloved books of all of the Bible. And we find ourselves anchored in it for this reasoning series, 1 Peter 3.15 especially. Look with me again at that. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. See, the old Peter is looking back on the young Peter, and he knew there was a period of time when he was not ready to make a defense. He was not ready to give an account And he couldn't defend why he followed Jesus. Why do I take you down this trail today? Because first, I I want you to grasp, I want you to catalambano, to lay hold of and seize the reality that the love of God pursues after you. Even when you failed, God goes after us. So echoing Ephesians 3, look at, look at that again, that you may be able to contemplate, to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Comprehend the incomprehensible. God pursues you. Even when you fail, that's the kind of love that will not let you go. That's the kind of incomprehensible love that Paul's talking about. The kind of love that will not let you go. It's the kind of love that positions you to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. See, I'm convinced that based on what I read in the New Testament from this point forward, Whenever someone ever from this point forward accused Peter of associating with Jesus, he can respond with reverence and with gentleness and say, it's true. It's true, I belong to Jesus. I had guilt and I needed to be forgiven and Jesus forgave me and he restored me. See, that's the greatest reasoning that you have for why you belong to Jesus. That's why we needed to start there today, church. As we work through these things of facts and figures over the next couple of weeks, as we work through the reasoning for why we believe what we believe, we have to start there. I have a past. I'm guilty. But Jesus forgave me. And he restored me. And he put me on a new path. So here's the second reason I took you down this story this morning. The first one was so that you would grasp and comprehend the love of Christ. But here's the second one. 
don't let your past, your sin, keep you out. Don't let it keep you from serving. Don't let it keep you from helping to expand the kingdom. Yeah, you got to confess it. You got to deal with your past. But once you've dealt with it, God's forgiveness of your guilt is so great that you can begin again. You can have a brand new beginning. Jesus says, follow me. Keep on following me. Don't give up. Do what I've called you to do. You can begin again, but confess, deal with it, and then move on. Jesus says, don't let that stop you, that failure. Learn from it, but don't let it keep you out of the game. You gotta do what I've called you to do because you have a future, and he wants to use you for expanding the kingdom. God laid that on my heart to share with you this morning, and I want to pray right now that we would ask God to seal this in our hearts. Would you join me in that? Let's do that, and then we'll step into a little bit more worship to wrap up the service. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what you've showed us and made very clear this morning that you indeed intend things for our good, even when it doesn't feel good, and I'm sure it did not feel good for Peter to be confronted like that but you meant it for good. Confront us, Father. I I pray that on behalf of everyone watching today, that we would be that surrendered to you, that we would just say, confront us. Look upon us and see where there's a sin barrier in our life. God, I, I pray like King David said, look upon my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. I ask that on behalf of our entire congregation. If people who are watching, Father, are willing that you would push on us until we surrender whatever that thing is that we're holding on to. Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, convict us where we need conviction. Most of all, we ask not just for your forgiveness because we know we have that, but what we ask for is your restoration, that you would restore us to the place where you would use us again. I pray for that. In the name of the one who gave everything for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. If you're willing, stand up where you're at, and we'll have you sing along and worship with Michael this morning.